Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco. And I'm Michael Esquivel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Today's founder is Pelu Chan, the founder and CEO of Ferrum Health. Pelu studied both medicine and engineering at Stanford University and was four months away from receiving his MD when he dropped out to start his first company, which is when I met him. And I'm sure your parents love that. (laughs) Um, His current company is using AI to reduce the impact of medical errors, modernize quality improvement and improve patient outcomes. Pelu, it's so good to see you. Thank you for being here. It's great to be back on uh, and catching up with you. It's been, uh, been a few years, I think. Yeah. And today we have a very special guest investor, Jeff Hammerbacher. Jeff is who I go to with questions about healthcare and AI. He is a longtime angel investor, data scientist, and a board member at Datavant, Perkin Elmer, and Emids. He previously founded Cloudera, which he took public, as well as Related Sciences. And he's also my husband. <laughs> and it's his birthday tomorrow, Jeff. Thank happy, you for joining happy us. Happy birthday, Jeff. Happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Pelu, why don't you kick us off by giving us the Ferrum Health pitch? Thanks, Hallie. So Ferrum Health's journey actually started with a company that was uh, a part of Rock Health, my, my first company, Augmetics. And we were in the process of uh, bringing that company public via SPAC back in 2012, when I unfortunately had to take some time off to uh, care for a family member of mine my uncle, who actually was diagnosed and passed away from late-stage lung cancer. Uh, Here in the Bay Area, I have had the privilege of being a part of a lot of the digital health networks and was working closely with a number of clinical AI tools that were building AI tools for the cancer space. Uh, There are a number of companies at the time that had solutions that were FDA-cleared to address, diagnose, improve the outcomes for lung cancer patients. Uh, and if any of them had been able to be deployed on my my uncle, uh, they would have saved his life. But unfortunately, his lung cancer was missed by his doctors for five years. And by the time we found it, it was too late. So I became a man on a mission. I decided that there was something horribly wrong with healthcare, uh, amongst many other things. But uh, the problem that I identified was uh, the need to allow doctors to just use these advancements in technology that they wanted to use that were available on the market, that were FDA cleared, that could save thousands of lives, but for for whatever reason, weren't making it to the bedside. And so having worked with a number of the nation's largest health systems with my previous company, um, having worked with many of the AI companies that are in this space, I set out to understand why there was such disparity between the tools that were available and the actual use use of them on patients like you and me. And what we realized was uh, it wasn't actually because the AI didn't exist. There were at the time 70, and now there are over 700 FDA-cleared AI solutions available on the market. And it had everything to do with this last mile of clinical adoption of tools, the IT administrative legal challenges that every hospital faces whenever they try to turn on new solutions. 
Uh, there were a few that we realized were uh, gating factors, a few that were universal to AI adoption, and they had to do with some pretty common sense issues. Uh, the first was uh, this massive fragmentation of vendors. Every vendor has a different uh, standard. They want to integrate with a different approach. They want different sets of data. And so you basically need a data science team and an integrations team just to maintain your relationships as you add one, three, five vendors to your ecosystem. After that, we realized that the other big challenge on the IT side was the fact that these AI algorithms are incredibly data hungry and hospitals justifiably are incredibly data conservative. So there's this massive gap between what hospitals are willing to do with their data, where they're willing to send it, the access they're willing to provide, and what AI vendors are pushing for. So what we recognized was the average AI vendor is sitting here in the cloud. You know, they've got a GCP environment. It's two MIT students uh, and their dog in a garage. And they're offering a cutting-edge solution to doctors. They just need to send them all of their patient information every single day in perpetuity, and they'll get back whether that you know, information that patient has cancer. And so we realized that you needed a better approach, one that met providers where they were. And we also recognize that advancements in Kubernetes, advancements in edge compute, and advancements in developer operations tooling meant that you could actually provide health systems with a privately hosted, so within their own cloud or in their own data center, a privately hosted vendor neutral AI platform that allowed them to download and run this ecosystem of AI solutions safely and securely on their own patient data. So that's really the, 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 the inversion of the business model that we set out to introduce was let's put these AI tools in the hands of providers. Let's not ask them to be sending uh, all this patient data through very archaic integrations to these cloud AI vendors and have to figure out how I'm going to maintain the security, maintain the uptime, maintain the performance of all these, these different applications. Let's uh, build that middleware layer that everyone seems to be missing. And let's not only offer it to the AI companies to integrate with, Let's not only offer it to the providers to deploy, but let's also offer it to the incumbent uh, technology firms, right? Folks like the EHR providers or the imaging providers or the, even the cloud providers. And let's try to build this interoperability plaid style layer for AI that allows any provider anywhere in the world to deploy any AI solution on their patient population with no effort and complete confidence. So that's kind of the vision that we set at Ferrum. We've been incredibly fortunate to have scaled over the past several years to over 60 AI vendors that we've integrated into our container marketplace and made available to our provider customers. Uh, they span the most common AI use cases from things like lung cancer, the tools that would have saved my uncle uh, through oncology. We have tools that cover cardiovascular diseases like coronary artery disease and aortic aneurysms. We've got tools for neurology, orthopedics, pretty much every major clinical condition that uh, patients are affected by uh, that can benefit from AI is now on our platform. Uh, on the demand side, we've been fortunate enough to work closely with a number of the nation's leading health systems. Here in the Bay Area, we've got uh, Sutter Health as a very close and dear partner of ours. Uh, uh, elsewhere in the US, we are deployed at HCA Mission uh, over North Carolina, Carl Clinic, and a number of other health systems. And importantly, we're, we're signing on board a number of strategic channel partnerships as well. Uh, the most recent one of which we announced was uh, Oracle Cloud, where we're actually privileged to be 
the first four clinical AI tools that have been brought onto the platform all through the Ferrum standard operating layer. I'll pause there. Happy to answer any questions, yeah. Jeff or, or Hallie or Michael. Haley, thank but, you. Yeah, thank you for that great pitch. And I'm sorry that you had to come to this through tragedy that is so common for founders to, you were already in healthcare, um, but you found a corner that was even more personal to you and, and you went from there. So um, I'm sorry that that happened, but really inspired that you're working on this. Um, who wants to start? Jeff, do you have anything that you want to start with? Sure. Congratulations on the partnership with Oracle Cerner. Obviously, Epic is taking market share from them, most recently with Intermountain and UPMC as big announcements. Epic's approach to partnership has always been fraught. They're transitioning their app orchard, app environment to this connection hub, showroom, unclear uh, app store model. Uh, so I'm curious if someone's deployed Epic, how does Ferrum integrate with their Epic environment? That's a great question. It's easy to compare uh, Ferrum and our application uh, library to the Epic App Orchard or the Cerner App Catalog and a lot of these end interface application libraries. Uh, the difference is that we as a middleware layer, we actually manage the compute, the application hosting environment. We're actually where the application runs. So our integrations with Epic, with Cerner, with GE Siemens Philips, uh, any of the existing uh, healthcare IT vendors, uh, it's actually through HL7, DICOM APIs. Um, we aren't competing with, or we're not kind of offering an app store the same way that Epic or Cerner is. We're, they still maintain the interfaces. They still maintain the UIs. What we're doing is providing alternative to things like having to integrate with Google Cloud or things like having to maintain your own GPU cluster in your data center. So that's actually where we sit within the stack, right? We're, we're the compute layer. We're the application layer. We're not trying to compete with the EHR integration API layer. Sure. Do you have any go-to-market motion, though, that uh, you know, links with Epic in the same way that you now have with Oracle? One of the things to be aware of in the clinical AI space is that the vast majority of AI applications that are FDA cleared are actually on imaging, not on kind of EHR data. The exact reason why Epic and Cerner uh, have such difficult interfaces and have really such fragmented standard standards for their uh, different deployments is actually why there are actually very few AI tools that have been FDA cleared that are actually scalable in healthcare. So when I mentioned the 60 plus FDA cleared solution that we have standardized, containerized, available to be one-click deployed to our customers, uh, 55 plus of those are actually imaging based and the remainder are actually natural language based. And all of those are very straightforward, HL7, DICOM, or JSON uh, APIs that we can use to both push and pull into the patient record. Hey, Lou, it's just amazing to see the progress made here. So with this world domination strategy you've got, what is the ultimate goal here? <laughs> Actually, it's not world domination. I, it's, uh, I feel like every founder is supposed to want to dominate the world. And maybe the, I'm not supposed to say this to Jeff because he, he wants founders who can do that. But uh, um, I, I really think of uh, Ferrum Health as a critical enabling layer where you know, we, we don't want to try to replace 
every application interface that Epic's going to host and every single work list and UI and messaging feature that is going to be that these AI tools are going to have to integrate with. We're simply trying to provide a, an easier, uh, less fraught way for providers to turn these solutions on. Um, but uh, one of our core beliefs is doctors are going to keep doctoring on the interfaces that they currently use. Trying to rip them out and replace them is a generational task. And when you have the opportunity to deploy tools that, for example, increase the rate of early cancer detection from 31% to 65%, which is an actual data point from one of our, one of our facilities, wow. you should deploy it however the hell you can deploy it. Pardon my French. I'm not sure how this podcast is. <laughs> uh, all right, great. Uh, however the not hell you kids. can deploy it. Kids aren't interested in this podcast. <laughs> Um, but you, yeah, really. And so if we can inject insights, you know, AI generated improvements into a doctor's workflow, work list, their Epic in basket, uh, we think that AI is going to be present at every touch point in care. And so you've got to have an orchestration layer that allows you to extract data, compute on it and ingest it and inject it into any point of the provider's workflow. And we're seeing that, right? We have AI tools that uh, will run on solutions and will actually reprioritize the patient that the doctor is going to go see based upon how urgent they are. We have solutions that uh, run alongside the doctor and actually are used as decision support or uh, to assist in diagnosis. There are solutions that run afterwards, like safety nets that try to look for gaps in care or patients who are falling through the cracks. And each one of those, I mean, that it, it injects into a different point in care. Uh, but each one of those needs to run on a single standard platform that can be used to deploy, update, monitor, integrate, validate, uh, kind of this exploding library of AI applications that the, the average hospital really needs to be using. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I, I think, you know, this idea of a kind of interoperability marketplace kind of middleware layer is one that is pretty, pretty classic, but does not exist in healthcare uh, when it comes to clinical AI. Yes. Can you tell us about the business model? Absolutely. Uh, so we we think of it like a iPhone and App Store approach, where on the one hand we are actually able to save hundreds of thousands of dollars per AI application that we deploy on the provider side by allowing them to not have to hire an entire engineering team to maintain their AI libraries. Uh, so we actually charge them a platform fee, something in the order of twenty to twenty five percent of their total AI book of business or the total AI spend. And then on the other end, we actually do take some revenue share from the application vendors that we enable. Fun fact on that, uh, the average app vendor uh, actually is spending something like 15 to $20 for every $1 of ARR that they are generating. That's kind of the number of venture capital raised to uh, revenue raised. And they're actually spending on average half of the revenue that they take in on cloud compute. Wow. wow. So wow. the current economics in healthcare AI, especially clinical AI, is kind of atrocious, right? For an average deal, 70 to 100K, a health system will spend $300,000 to $500,000 uh, implementing it in total internal costs. And the average application vendor will make uh, a less than 50% margin after cloud compute and then uh, <laughs> be completely underwater when it yeah. comes to kind of LTV CAC. Yeah. I mean, those aren't the sort of um, SaaS margins that you would expect. When you say that uh, the providers are paying 20 to 25% of AI spend, is that how, how exactly does that work? Because I imagine it fluctuates with usage, with adding new apps, et cetera. Can you just double click on that? 
Sure thing. So at the end of the day, one of our core beliefs is that the entire industry is still trying to figure out how to pay for AI. And so when we look at vendors, when we look at health systems, it's actually incredibly variable. Their capabilities of quantifying the ROI and justifying the cost. But we do see some common trends, right? The average AI vendor is costing the average health system something in the range of you know, 50 to 250K uh, ARR per year. Um, the difference between the 50 and 250 has everything to do with how much value are they adding. So one core part of what we do is we actually provide some pretty robust clinical and business analytics for the providers to actually make decisions on. And so any provider that deploys us, they actually have access to a, a GPT generated automated validation engine that we provide that allows them to assess any AI tools performance as compared to the decisions that their clinicians have made historically to understand what the change would be in care on their own patient data. And that's actually what we have found to be a critical part of the decision-making process because every provider thinks they're different. Every provider thinks that their patient population is special. Every provider thinks that they um, uh, need to prove it on their own population. And so you were either faced with uh, one, letting them have you know, nine, 12-month pilots, or two, having to actually give them those answers for, for them before they decide to pay. So yeah, it's, it's quite a, quite a yeah. challenge to get providers to spend money on AI these days, but um, an easy way is to show them, hey, here are all the patients you could have saved over the past three months, six months if you, if you had used this tool. Uh, I'm just curious to follow up on the business model to ask why you charge providers anything at all. You know, given the market environment where it's very difficult for providers to allocate spend to anything that has, doesn't have a direct tie to cost reduction, I've seen other startups like Trinetics, for example, that take an approach where, you know, Trinetics says, we will, we'll, we'll structure your data for free. We'll take your clinical data warehouse and we'll structure it as the OMOP data model. And we're only going to make money once we start delivering value to you so that you can use this, uh, you know, structured data for cohort construction for clinical trials, uh, for example. Um, and I, when, I, when I looked at your, your deck, I had assumed that the model would be, you know, get this for free into providers as much as possible and then make money off of the, the apps. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how did you decide that it was important to, to charge money to the provider as well? Two main approaches there, right? The first one is, hey, listen, uh, we are not in the booming era of unsustainable growth models. And actually, if you look at particularly AI applications in healthcare, we've kind of had a few AI winters already where companies have tried to scale AI point solutions and, and failed. So the, the, the first answer is we're trying to be responsible and have every part of our business be able to stand on its own. The second answer is that there is just such a massive cost savings for providers to not have to send up their own IT orgs, especially when we are actually tying those platform fees to the actual application purchases. And so they're able to allocate those costs to the individual service line, the individual business unit that's buying the application. It doesn't kind of like appear as a single bill on their IT team's uh, budget. It actually is just a little add-on for every application to every oncology department or orthopedic department, when they buy an application, they just pay 20% more than the application vendor charges 
but it's still kind of out of their operating expense. It's not like an IT capital expense part. And we do that to try to one, stay agile and get closer to what you're talking about. But two, why do, why do we charge anything at all as a platform fee? I mean, that's because we're trying to make sure we're not underwater with every deployment that we implement because we do want to show that there is a sustainable uh, high margin way to, to build a company in this space. Yeah, Pele, with you you taking that all on, you know, how large is the team and, and where do you see it growing to? Yeah, uh, we're uh, around 22 full-time employees. One of the things I keep in mind is kind of, I think Warren Buffett said this, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like, you know, the, the optimal company in a capitalist society is like one that has like zero employees, 100% margin and infinite value to customer. <laughs> and obviously that's not something that is possible, but as a interoperability connectivity platform, right, especially one that is working closely with channel partners that are dominant in the space, you know, one that has built a ton of reusable tooling, right? Our key challenge is connecting the dots. We don't, we're not, we don't need a massive sales team. We don't need a massive engineering team, right? We're not build, building or rebuilding Epic. We're just trying to build these common layers that everyone can use. And our competitive advantage is going to be network effect much more than it's going to be kind of a feat of engineering that we accomplish. So um, uh, for me, I, if we can keep uh, the team lean and we can just make sure that we advocate through biz dev, through sales, that you know, providers everywhere, that you know, incumbent technology vendors you know, uh, everywhere are, are using our standards. I think that's probably where most of our investments are going to go into. Love it. When you say your, your key value is the network effect, can you say more about how you see your uh, network effect? Like, is, a, is another provider, does that have greater marginal value for your network effect than another app? Like, like which piece of the network mm. do you think is most important to push on and drive to get the most value? Like everything else in healthcare, I think the rate limiter is the provider. Uh, maybe I'll get in trouble for saying that, but uh, <laughs> I think most, most of our providers acknowledge it as well. And so I think ultimately we've got to optimize around providers, right? So if you look at our model, right, everything from the fact that we are able to deploy into the private cloud, the fact that we manage all of them, analytics for them, uh, the fact that we kind of tie into operating, operating budgets, not the capital budgets, it's all focused on trying to eliminate robots for providers. Uh, so that's where all the power is. Um, and I will say, you know, as a, as a last piece of this, it's not just providers and vendors, right? It's also these channel partners, these legacy technology solutions that currently command uh, the market share uh, and the technology spend from, from providers. Uh, at the end of the day, right, the providers are signing eight, nine figure deals with a lot of these legacy vendors. Um, and they're signing five, six figure deals with the average AI provider. So it makes a lot more sense for Ferrum and the AI infrastructure middleware that we provide to be able to support a lot of these legacy vendors as they look to maintain market share, expand their uh, footprint, um, su support the needs of the customers, uh, than it does for us to try to build up a sales force to tackle directly. Though I do think that there's an opportunity for us to do so. Um, uh, I, I, I do believe in kind of this plaid style approach of making our uh, technology a standard for use by channels as well. So that's, that's the last piece that, you know, we, if we can advocate for, you know, an, an, an AI container standard, if we can advocate for standard ways to integrate it and reintegrate it into end users and people happen to white label license our platform, I think we have access to a much larger part of the market that may be more conservative than we otherwise would.
I, I just wanted to, I want to understand if the scope of this is going to be strictly clinical uh, or if you see operational use cases as uh, coming into scope. I wish that operational use cases were something that a, a scalable AI model could improve on. But the reality is and I, uh, that operations is extremely chaotic. Every single hospital has a different woven together set of super time sensitive, uh, extremely brittle systems that they run their operations on. And so uh, there's it, it not really like one GPT model that's going to be able to fix all of your bed scheduling, right? There's not like one model that that's going to be able to fix uh, your staffing issues, right? It's got to be like a, a custom, highly consultative provider by provider integration into your specific data sources. And so where there's not standardization, the way there is with clinical documentation, with imaging, with labs, it's really hard to offer a standard application marketplace. I think that's on the ops side, a problem that I don't see being solved anytime soon. Plenty of companies out there, there's tons of money out there, you know, for billing, for coding, for staffing. Yeah. But I think that that's more of a consultative, deep in the trenches, you know, almost yeah. like Accenture style company. And I wonder if it's a different buyer too, within the hospital team. So by focusing, oh, totally, yeah. yeah, by focusing on the clinical, um, on that note, uh, you know, you, as you said, the rate limiter is a provider. I'm sure any provider that would come to you, you'd happily sign up as a customer. Can you say the same for on the other side for the AI, app, the apps that are coming in? Are you allowing anyone or is this a walled garden where you're curating and vetting these, um, these apps? I hate to use the word walled garden, uh, <laughs> but I think that there are more AI tools out there getting FDA cleared. The, the bar to building a great AI solution is dropping every year. Yeah. The number that are getting approved is increasing. And so for us, it's not so much a walled garden as much as it is who we prioritize. Like if an AI vendor came in and said, hey, here's a container that completely conforms with your standards. Can you put it on the marketplace? We won't say no. Um, okay. But we will make sure that when they get deployed into provider site, that those insights, that performance, all those analytics are made available to other providers. So we do have a um, more of like a, a Yelp style mm. role than we have mm. in a kind of Apple marketplace style role where we allow providers to understand how tools have performed, understand how they can expect it to perform, things like that. But on the cool. provider side, right, like yeah. we prioritize stuff that provides one. Yeah. Well, you're saying you're you're helping them outsource a lot of the data science that they would need. Otherwise, you can also kind of help outsource the business development aspect or at least make it um, a little easier to kind of vet the different apps by seeing, um, you know, as you called it, like Yelp style reviews um, on how they yeah. how they've performed and worked for other providers. Yeah. And it's, I mean, if you're an yeah. AI vendor today, like what are your options, right? Like, as investors, if <laughs> yeah. you look at an AI vendor that's saying, yeah. we're going to sell a point solution to a direct provider sale, yeah. like what do you say? Like, and, and just, yeah, I mean, even, even doing that sales pitch is not easy. How many AI uh, vendors are on the platform today? Uh, north of 60. Okay. And how many were at the beginning of the year? Uh, probably less than 40. Okay. And do you have any... You know, I sat down uh, many years ago with a, 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 a woman named Suchi Sarai, who's a, uh, an entrepreneur and researcher in this space. And this was in 2018. And we tried to list the most successful clinical AI companies um, that we come up with. And before this call, I went back to that list. And <laughs> most of them have failed since then. When you look at it, you know, when I came up with my list, I came up with AI Doc and Viz.ai. We're probably the two biggest and most successful clinical AI companies 
that I could think of. Is there anybody else that you would add to that list as, as an exemplar and saying like, you know, we want Ferrum Health to be the platform to allow for more of these kinds of companies to be built? Like, who would you point to? Let me change that question a bit. I think, uh, and this may be in a popular opinion, but I think that the kind of upper bound on the valuation of any individual point solution AI company is in the nine figures and not 10. And so these sorts of sustainable AI companies that I think are out there are ones like ICAD or Riverain or Gleamer, companies that are really focused and really, really good at one specific domain, right? ICAD is women's breast imaging, right? And they, they're the ones that Google licensed their, uh, their AI mammogram tool to, right? Like I think it's like Riverain that is the market leader by a long shot for lung cancer. Gleamer is the market leader for fracture. And I think that that is the kind of business model that allows for sustainable AI companies uh, in the long term. Just because, again, I mean, the average AI company, right, and you know the the, the two names that you mentioned are are included, right? They're they're making high five, low six figures per health system, and as long as you're a developer of AI, you don't really have much upwards opportunity there. And so you're now talking about, you know, across the entire market, you're not going to get 100% market share, right? You might get 10, 20%. Uh, you might maintain that over time. But then, you know, over like that, that amount of revenue divided across, you know, a point solution and every new solution you got, you, you develop is kind of another competitive uh, moonshot that you have to win the market of too, right? There's not really much scalability from application to application as a point solution vendor. That means a billion dollar company is going to be able to, out-compete or out-deploy um, specialists. So we believe that marketplace is going to look like a lot of nine-figure valuation companies that are thriving and competitive and uh, kind of vibrant, much more than it looks like a few small ones that somehow managed to outspend other AI vendors and developing algorithms to, to kind of win the market. And we think of our role as enabling those specialists to, to thrive. So, Pelu, switching gears a little bit here, one of my favorite questions to ask founders, uh, especially as they're thinking about their long-term vision, if you had that proverbial magic wand, uh, what would you change right now? About the company or the, the market? market? And the company. I would make it so that providers' staffing issues, kind of a lot of these immediate post-COVID, just massive disruptions to the market, um, so kind of provider staffing and provider uh, reimbursement was uh, just fixed. And that's kind of a massive issue that obviously has a hundred other issues. But um, I think that uh, actual patient care, like clinical care, a, a good part of the market uh, is just unable to focus on that because, you know, hospitals are shutting down, reimbursements getting slashed. Like there are so many just fundamental financial issues in healthcare. Here, here. And I shouldn't be saying that as a, as a healthcare technology entrepreneur, right? But it's the dirty <laughs> secret that we all know about. Brutal truth. I, I love it. And what about the company? What would you change? Honestly, not too much right now, aside from, of course, you know, I wish we had 10 times as many partnerships and 10 times as many customers, but we've got a great team. Uh, you know, we uh, have, I think, the right market timing, the right business model, um, the right pieces in place to be that uh, foundational layer for clinical AI going forward. Um, it's really for us, just a question of market timing. I'm curious. I saw that you raised or you announced a raise in January of this year. During that raise, did you consider bringing any providers onto your cap table? 
I didn't see any in the announcement. Maybe they already are. But, I, you know, I've seen models like Truveta went and brought, you know, many providers onto their cap table. And this is becoming like an increasingly common thing I see for people to sell to providers is to bring like a small set of providers onto their cap table to kind of align incentives uh, early on and also to build sort of data partnerships like inference with Mayo, for example. Um, so I'm curious if that's a model that you've explored when thinking about financing the, the business. Something that I am working on hard for our next fundraise. Pelu, I have a blog post that's a list of all of the CVCs in healthcare. So it is a really great place to just see. I list literally every single hospital that invests. So that could be helpful. I will go to your website right now. Well, there are challenges. <laughs> I'd be remiss of me as the lawyer in the room, so to speak, not, not, to, not to identify challenges that you need to think about whenever a strategic investor potentially becomes part of the cap table. You know, issues around board representation, conflicts issues around right of first offers that they may ask for on M&A. I mean, it, the, we could spend the next hour just talking about some of the challenges and considerations and trade-offs, Pelu. So uh, I, get, I have the privilege of talking to Pelu frequently, so it's something that, uh, that he and I will tackle. But uh, be mindful, listeners, that it's, it's, it's you know, it, you want to you wanna construct the relationship with a strategic investor in a way that it doesn't compromise the business and, and also doesn't foreclose to the greatest extent possible opportunities for others strategics to partner with you on the commercial and investment side in the future. So, you know, there definitely are trade-offs. Michael, I'm curious in your experience, have you seen more CVCs, so corporate venture capital, that has ruined companies or that has helped companies? Maybe not ruined, has hurt companies or has helped companies? No, I think on balance, they're, they're incredibly helpful. It's very, very powerful. Okay. And, and if your lawyer has properly constructed the relationship in the investment <laughs> documents, it can be very fruitful. But, yeah. but, I think, but, I, but I do think, listen, there, there's two different types of investors. Let, let's be clear. You have the CVCs, and for the most part, they're structured like venture funds with single LPs, right, the, the, the corporate itself. Then you have investors that invest right off the balance sheet, like just straight corporate investing. And so the considerations, a CVC tends to behave more often than not like a traditional financial institutional VC. And it's when you get investments off the balance sheet that sometimes other motivations come into play that are not financially driven. There may be commercial or, or, or strategic objectives that drive the motivation. So you want to be mindful of where the money's coming from, what the incentives are, and then just make sure that, that you're not, by taking money in from one strategic, you're foreclosing an entire segment of the market, because that could be very damning for the business in the long run. Yeah, I think, I think that it might have been you who told me, but it's like, Something along the lines of like the worst number of strategic CVCs to have on your cap table is one. So if you do it, make sure you've got a few uh. of them on because otherwise, you know, if the one then, for example, like if we brought on board, like I name your healthcare IT company here, suddenly Ferrum becomes like a, like a Cerner shop or a Epic shop exactly. or whatever it is, right? Exactly. So to the extent, and a lot of successful founders that you know well, that Hallie and I work with regularly, that Jeff's invested in, have masterfully brought in multiple, multiple CVCs and multiple. I was going to mention Omada Health is one perfect example. Yeah. 
Amazing. Well, Pelu, we wish you all the best. It was so fun to hear from you and congratulations on all the success so far. If there are any listeners out there that work at a hospital or clinic that is interested, please reach out to Pelu. He would love to talk to you. And if you have an AI app that wants to integrate, I'm sure he'd love to talk to you as well. Um, they, do you, are you comfortable giving your email out over the airways? Sure thing. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to share um, it? <laughs> yeah, it's Pelu, P-E-L-U at ferum.ai if you are a tech company. And it's a P-E-L-U <laughs> at ferumhealth.com if you're a health system. So just uh, pick your poison. Amazing. All right. And th- Jeff, thank you for being here. I can't wait to celebrate your birthday all weekend. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Pelu. It's <laughs> so good me. to see you both. Happy birthday, Jeff. Happy birthday, guys. Thanks. And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com, for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Teco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time. 